This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Wade, we're back after a two-week sabbatical, mm-hmm. getting back in touch with our inner selves at the top of a fire watch tower in the middle of a national park. It feels good to, to be back and rejuvenated. Yeah, you know, my heart, it's re- its really been burning for this moment, and I'm excited. We're, g- we're going to light it up. We're going to light it up. <laughs> Wade, those that's a very specific choice of words there. Is there a reason that you picked those figures of speech? You know, Kevin, we're going to be talking about the sizzling new film from Taylor Sheridan, Those Who Wish Me Dead. Oh, man. Welcome back, Wade. We're also going to be offering our weekly recommendations on this episode, episode 290 of Seeing and Believing. Why'd they put you in a fire tower? Well, I'm just lucky, I guess. I read the wind wrong. I should have gone to them. Then you've been dead too. Listeners, we are here, episode 290 of Seeing and Believing, and that was a clip, the trailer from Those Who Wish Me Dead, the new film from writer-director Taylor Sheridan. Kevin, it's good to be back. It's been a few weeks, a busy few weeks. We haven't done the show, but we're here, we're ready, and we've got some fire puns. They're just, they're flowing. Well... I mean, we we do have to say that you have some fire puns. Mm. That's just not really, that's not really my strength. Uh, you know, I I bring the the curmudgeonly opinions. You bring the the sparkling word play. That's kind of part of the division of labor that we've got going on here. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you know, I think I think before the show's up, we're gonna get something from you, and it's gonna be good. I I, I predict oh, man. that. And maybe it'll be in the what can you buy for $5 segment. Who knows? But something is coming that's related to fire, sparks, <laughs> etc. I'm already racking my brains on something that will <laughs> live up to those expectations. <laughs> well, listeners, we are excited to be back on this week's episode. Kevin and I discuss, yes, Taylor Sheridan's new film, Those Who Wish Me Dead, To go ahead and get us started, here's the movie's official synopsis. Still reeling from the loss of three lives, Hannah, played by Angelina Jolie, is a smoke jumper who's perched in a watchtower high above the Montana wilderness. She soon encounters Connor, played by Finn Little, a skittish boy who's bloodied, traumatized, and on the run in the remote forest. As Hannah tries to bring him to safety, She's unaware of the real dangers to follow. Two relentless killers hunting Connor in a fiery blaze, consuming everything in its path. Kevin, 
We frequently have found ourselves on opposite sides of the aisle when reviewing Taylor Sheridan's previous work. I loved Hell or High Water and Sicario, two films he penned in recent years. You did not. I know you haven't seen it, but I also thought there was much to commend about Wind River, Sheridan's second outing as a director. I haven't seen his previous film, but I did see Wind River. So, as we jump into our discussion, I'd like to know if this film, Those Who Wish Me Dead, was finally the movie to bring you around to Sheridan's work, or if this project just finds another slot in a line of disappointing outings. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I guess I'll start by saying that uh, I find that when movies in, with a, a strong creative hand from Taylor Sheridan work, they tend, to, at least in my opinion, to to work in spite of him. Like I did, obviously, I did not like Hell or High Water. Um, uh, I liked Sicario, but it was more because of the directing and cinematography than the the screenplay per se. And with this one, you know, it is kind of like a, a meat and potatoes kind of thriller. So it kind of seems like there was a some potential there for kind of the same thing that happened with Sicario to happen with this one. The you know the fact that. I'm not a huge fan of his writing isn't necessarily the most important thing when you're essentially just watching a thriller about uh, two bad guys hunting down some good guys. And that's kind of really all you need to know. Um, I got to say, I don't think that this movie has really brought me around on the the oeuvre of Taylor Sheridan. I still don't think it's a particularly good picture although in this in this case he shares screenwriting credits with michael corita and uh charles levitt so you know if if the parts that i didn't like uh didn't have anything to do with him then you know i might have to eat my words someday but yeah i don't know i this one was kind of a whiff for me what did you think of it since you know you (laughs) you tend to be a little bit more generous with with him than i am yeah, no, I, I I tend to to be that way. And this is one of those movies I, I messaged you and I said, hey, I'm excited about watching this film. And we decided to review it because it just it has it has the pieces of a ride I would enjoy uh, a survival picture man or woman versus nature in addition to two. Uh, assassins. I mean, it just, it just sounds kind of fun. And ah, I got to say, Kevin, this is just, it's not, I don't think it's a good movie. It's just lazy filmmaking, lazy screenwriting all around. And I'm actually envious because there are a number of people that I know who enjoyed this movie, uh, who said, you know, it wasn't great, but I had fun along the way. It was tense. Uh, There were some, some good moments some high octane uh, moments. I just, I, I, it's hard for me to find the good in this movie because I'm just so disappointed in how it turned out. And I'll get into specifics later. This is just like real general and I'm not necessarily talking about why I didn't like it, but yeah, it's just, it was a big disappointment for me, Kevin. I don't know that I, I hated it so much as just, or or even was disappointed by it just so much as kind of watching. I was like, yeah, you know, it was whatever. Um, 
I I remember seeing a, a sentiment on Twitter. I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact person who said it. it might have been a fellow critic, Charles Bromesco, maybe. I'm sorry that the that I'm blanking on the source, but uh, this person observed that this is the sort of movie that is sort of, you know, back in the day when it was maybe more common practice, just, you know, maybe come in from, you know, mowing the lawn or something on a Saturday afternoon. You kind of just don't want to do anything. You flip on the TV and there's a movie showing and you can kind of just watch it and, you know, zone out or, or nap or not as, as you please. And it's just sort of, it gets the job done. It's a good way to maybe pass the time, but it's not really something that's going to stick with you. And I think that's maybe a, a good description of, of this movie. It's kind of got the, the, the frame the of a pretty solid house. It's just there's not really any, you know, like windows in there. The roof is kind of half finished and it's just it's the structures there. It's just not really filled in with anything that really gives it a whole lot of heft. There's just a, not a lot of specificity in in this film really at all. Like the, there's the conflict is pretty generic. We find out that, you know, these contract killers are are after young Connor because his father is a forensic accountant who's found out something shady's going on. And that's really all we get of the conflict. We never find out, you know, who exactly ha- is pulling the strings on these killers. We don't really find out what exactly uh, Connor's father found that everyone is just willing to literally burn down part of the world in order to stop it from coming to light. Like, there. That's really uh, generic and and vague. The characters really aren't sketched out with with any specificity. I don't think I could really. I don't. I I don't think that I could name you the the two killers. Like I don't know what their names are <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, I know that uh, Hannah and Connor are uh, the Angelina Jolie character and the young boy characters, but. That might be because you mentioned those in your in your intro, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. and again, this isn't uh, me like just kind of sitting there with my with my arms folded, just kind of refusing to engage with the movie. I think it's just the sort of movie where it doesn't really want to be bothered with bringing a whole lot of well observed detail to the uh, the storytelling or the characters. Because at the end of the day, it's really just about kind of delivering some some you know very adequate thriller movie thrills, and you know making sure to get in and out before two hours have passed. And it does that, but it, I mean, you could be excused, Wade, for kind of feeling like it went in one ear and out the other, and kind of left you empty afterwards. Yeah, you know it. If if it would have executed well, uh, all those things that you kind of talked about, uh, the lack of specificity, uh, the short runtime, a concentration maybe just on action and thrills, could could be okay. Uh, it just, I guess to me, the screenplay felt like a jumble of cliches together. And it immediately starts out that way because we... We get this harrowing scene, uh, Angelina Jolie's character, she's in the forest, it's on fire, and she sees three individuals, a family, in the forest, and she's unable to get to them, and then she wakes up, and she's, she's dreaming, 
and okay, yeah, the typical uh, haunted by by ghosts of her past uh, segment, and then we get the characters who are kind of on the run from the hitmen, but the hitmen are just. <sighs> They're just, I don't know, it's, it's hard to suspend my belief because they're so sloppy in every single way. And they're completely against the characters that they're, they basically think they are. Uh, and that's not, I don't think that's on purpose. The, the film's humor doesn't work. There are, there's maybe one laugh, um, but the others just, they just, they don't work. And I think also for me, one of the bigger problems is it just the entire movie felt artificial and you can go to the production design, the story, the acting, even some of the casting. It just doesn't feel real. And I was watching Contact, the film from Robert Zemeckis uh, yesterday, uh, 1997, and that film I think is, is a good film. And it's a little heavy handed in, in some of its themes and a little over the top in some ways. But I was telling Priscilla, I said, there's just something about watching a movie that's a big, a big film, uh, a blockbuster film, a, a mass market movie. And I think I think Contact was back when it was released. But to watch it be filmed by someone who knows what they're doing and knows how to use sets and knows how to use the camera. It's just, there's, there's something to that. And it's fascinating. Both films are very different, um, but just noticing the care. And I, I didn't get that here, whether it's green screen, whether it's these tight camera shots that don't allow you to see much uh, that hides some of the action. And when it does show some of the action, it's just not staged very well. Uh, all of those are just very artificial. And then, too, just Angelina Jolie, her character, uh, her performance is fine. I, th I think it's I think it's good. I think the script lets her down. But the the costuming, the hair, the makeup, uh, she she just doesn't look like someone who spent her life in the Montana wilderness fighting fire. She looks like a Hollywood star. And in other films, she has she's been transformed. So it's it's not. It's not her. It's just, it's just the overall production of the movie, and it all feels haphazard and and slapped together. And above all, I just didn't find it very entertaining. So that maybe that's just the overarching theme here. I could forgive other things if I just found it entertaining, and I, and I didn't. What I was looking for in this in this film, I, I think there you, you're onto something about the production design. There be, there's been a certain something missing and i think what i was looking for that was missing from this film was some sense that sheridan was trying to establish um a sense of place and through that uh bolster the themes of the film through his his shot choices and the way that he he uses the camera so to give you an example of maybe a couple of places where i think he might be onto something there Early in the movie, there there are a couple of shot. Or early in the movie, there's there is a shot where we see uh, this car driving down kind of this you know this rural road. They they stop to uh, take a break to like you know brush their teeth and 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 go to the bathroom. And uh, they're next to a pasture, and there's this lone horse in the pasture. And uh, Connor walks up to it and is kind of petting it. Um, and then they leave and they drive off and. 
uh, Sheridan shoots that in an extreme long shot. So, and pretty much the only things in the frame are the horse and the car pulling away, and everything else is just this very, very flat, very open landscape. Uh, later in the film, there's kind of this overhead shot of the the two villains uh, meeting with a superior at a at a truck stop, and we Sheridan shoots it for, again from an extreme uh, long shot, kind of a god's eye view, and we kind of see this uh, this truck navigating the 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 rows and rows of semi trucks at this truck stop, and that's also kind of it gives you a sense of 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 place and put together those kind of they suggest something about the contrast between the the natural beauty of uh the the american west and the ways in which the american west has kind of been you know there's an encroaching uh industrialization uh of of roads and cars and vehicles on that natural beauty i think that that's a really compelling thing to kind of follow with this film, unfortunately, I don't think that Sheridan really does anything with that. I, late, you know, late in the film, one character says, "I hate it here," and another character responds, uh, "It hates you right back." And that that suggests that there's kind of this theme of of man versus nature that Sheridan's kind of trying to tease out here. That the the bloodthirsty killers are kind of uh, almost acting against nature they're they're not just trying to kill people they're also just perverting the natural order of things through their violence and that somehow the the fire that pops up in the second half of the film is almost a reaction against that but sheridan doesn't really follow that up with with his imagery it's kind of, it's in the screenplay and there are vague hints of it earlier in the picture but it's not something that's consistently followed through and you kind of by that, I think that's why maybe it feels a little bit insubstantial. Is that those elements just Sheridan doesn't seem either interested or able to really elaborate on those and embroider them in a way that makes it feel that makes it hit home with the viewer. And and which is surprising because in the the other films that he's written, with probably the exception of Sicario Two and When River, which he wrote and directed. Uh, those themes I feel like are pretty apparent, and he he does so uh, by highlighting the way that America has has trampled uh, Native Americans in Native American culture. And I was reading a book by Chuck Klosterman, and he he was talking about. What group of people are probably the least represented in in literary circles? I think it could also apply to film as well. And and he he said, I, I believe it's it's the Native American people. And it's fascinating to see how Sheridan explores their storylines, even if it's just here or there. And What's surprising, though, in this movie is there's little to almost nothing of any uh, intellectual heft or thematic heft. Instead, it just becomes this simple uh, color by the numbers action and survival picture. And it it felt to me 
like some of the story evaporated in the editing room or this was perhaps just kind of rushed through because there are a number of of problems in this in the script that just they just feel odd so for example uh angelina jolie her character she's a, she's a hot shot and at the beginning of the film the movie kind of really concentrates on just for the first few minutes on her and and the men around her and they're just you know this kind of rowdy crew they're, it's what you would expect in a film like this and then those individuals are gone and they kind of pop up at the end uh, another scene that they're the characters are on the run and the reason they're going to montana is because a family there but when you get to the end of the movie it's as if well I guess, is, is that just the script's way of getting them from Florida to Montana? Because none of the family connections are really, the histories are explored. And Angelina's character never even actually makes a connection between the boy she's protecting and the, a person who's related to the boy that she's protecting. So I don't know if things got cut and chopped, but it just, it all feels very underdeveloped from a story standpoint, but also from a thematic standpoint. Well, I, I think part of it is just it. There are certain aspects of the screenplay that feel kind of kind of like vestigial connections. So, uh, Jolie's Hannah, she uh, you know has this trauma in her past where while fighting a fire, she uh, you know the she misread the wind, and so instead of fighting the fire, they had to run from. She and her crew had to run from the fire. And she witnessed some uh, some young people who had gotten caught in the blaze as well. She she witnessed them you know, perish in the flames right before her eyes. You know, and there's kind of it seems like there's this intent on Sheridan's part to draw a parallel with, with between you know before she wasn't able to save these boys from a forest fire. This time she's going to be able to save this boy from contract killers it's sort of like it seems like there's some sort of connection or arc that's trying to be drawn between those two things but it kind of just feels like um something somebody would have come up with from reading a screenwriting textbook like okay you have a character's past trauma and that informs their their present struggle and so that's why that that's how everything connects here but it doesn't feel organic to this particular story it feels a little bit shoehorned in Especially considering that elsewhere, it seems to be suggesting that a lot of the the conflict here is much less driven by the characters' pasts and their their trauma, their hangups, all of that, and is driven much more by whether or not they are in tune with what the natural world around them is doing. The, the killers start a forest fire on purpose. The the good guys are survivalists or or firefighters or or park rangers who are much more in tune with how to coexist with the natural world, and though like that doesn't really jibe very well with the the trauma the the past trauma aspect of the screenplay, and it doesn't really feel like Sheridan's really done any work to to harmonize those two or to pick one. Or to figure out you know, how they inform each other. It's just kind of they're both there, which, like you said, it, it makes it feel like maybe there were 
connections at some point that later got cut out somehow. But it's difficult to see what a it's difficult to see any movie that given even three hours would be able to kind of knit those two together in a satisfying way. Yeah, no, and and I agree. And even so, so John uh, Bernthal, he's he's in this film. He plays a sheriff, and he has it's revealed that he had a past relationship with Angel Angelina Jolie's character Hannah. But even that is not. It's just it, it doesn't. There's nothing done with it uh, to create any sort of emotional type connection. If there is uh, something that I uh, that I thought worked well in the movie, I thought uh, Jolie's her relationship with uh, Finn Little, their chemistry, so Hannah and Connor's chemistry throughout the movie, I thought that was that was pretty good. And I'm trying to remember if I've seen Finn Little in anything, but he plays the the young boy on the run here, and I thought his performance uh, was 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 pretty decent. And so we we get to see some 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 decent performances out there, but it just ends in a weird way. And and I was thinking through, we never really actually figure out what what the problem is uh or what information could possibly come to light why are these people in danger and i don't think that's necessarily a problem but in a movie like this it's so unsatisfying it does kind of become a problem because it's like well you know i i watched what a film that i didn't enjoy and i i didn't even get to figure out why these characters were on the run and uh there's i I don't even want to ruin it but there's a cameo in the movie who seem he seems to be the big baddie of the film he's in it for a scene it's a famous (laughs) actor it's just i don't know it's just a lot of strange stuff happening kevin i don't i don't know i don't know what to say about it yeah i i mean there it's not necessary to have you know a, a a complicated a complex plot or a plot that's even you know really elaborated on very very strongly i I, like for instance mad max fury road that is not a complicated picture it's not really important you know exactly what the structure of this post-apocalyptic world is i mean it's kind of fun to to you know delve into those things and pick up hints here and there but at the end of the day it's a movie about you know it's a movie that's essentially one long chase scene and a lot of the um the interesting thematic uh threads in that film come out th- uh, as a result of the action you know the George Miller uses uh uses imagery and uses action to to draw out the themes rather than kind of having you know here here's the themes part of the movie and here's the action part of the movie or uh a more lyrical movie, like you, you think of of a Malick film, where you know, good luck even you know finding uh, a plot uh, in, in some of his films, where you know the, it's it's a very clear drama. It's much more impressionistic, and it's about the the mood and the atmosphere and the way that uh, he makes connections through through editing and imagery. And again, there the story isn't all that important. And I think that this film. If it had really leaned into maybe the the idea of you know there there's a shot where Jolie is she's in the Firewatch Tower and she's looking through her binoculars at a storm cell far off in the distance and you know lightning is flashing and she's she's kind of talking to it she's she's essentially saying you know move move off north like don't come here and if you got kind of that really 
uh, you know, hard bitten uh, humanity versus nature dynamic in this and really leaned into it where it was less about the specifics of the you know forensic accounting snafu that led to these contract killers being hired. You know, I, I think that there's a version of this film where the specifics of the conflict would matter less than kind of the way that it interacts with this these natural vistas that Sheridan shoots. But I don't think that Sheridan really lands on that because his camera work and his composition, even the cinematography, is just not that expressive. And, you know, it's it's just a shame, especially on the cinematography. I uh, I think Ben Richardson is the director of photography here, and he shot uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, among mm, other wow. projects. And, you know, I think that's a that's a fantastic looking picture. And that's another one that really is able to use uh, image to to build atmosphere and kind of an entire world. And it's just a shame that that kind of verve wasn't brought to the visuals in in this movie. Yeah, and, and I just, the flames here just lacked a physicality, and which diminished yeah, the danger. C- CGI f- flames were kind of a, I mean, I you can't really burn down an entire forest for, for this, but yeah, the CGI flames are kind of, they're pretty obviously CGI. (laughs) Yeah. So listeners, that is our review. Those who wish me dead is currently playing in theaters and it's currently streaming for the next month or so on HBO max. You can check it out there. Let us know your thoughts. If you liked it, I would love to hear why you liked it. We'd love to read that on the air. Tweet us at cbeliefpod at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Kevin, we've reached the end of the show, and this is the part of the show where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. What would you like to recommend this week? Well, uh, my recommendation for this week is I, I had one that I was going to recommend, and then I saw something in the news today that made me very happy and uh, <laughs> caused me to uh, pull a, pull an audible on my recommendation because I'm just I'm glad that I can recommend this film and that it will soon become pretty easy to find for those who are interested. So, I mean, it's no secret that you and I are big Hirokazu Koreeda fans. Um, one of his earlier films, Afterlife, from 1998, uh, it, you know, it's, it's very good. It's been a little hard to find. Um, uh, I, I first saw it you know, back in the good old days of Netflix DVD by mail service where they had basically everything. Um, I saw it. I loved it. Um, this is a a movie that's essentially about the the human experience, uh, but it's told entirely through the perspective of people who have died, who are kind of in this 
limbo state where before they can pass on to uh, their eternal rest, um, they have to settle on one moment from their earthly life uh, to be commemorated uh, on film. Uh, and then once once they do that, they can they can move on. And it's just this this wonderful, sensitively told little movie about about what's important to us in life and the ways in which essentially filmmaking can crystallize and preserve uh, such moments for for others mm-hmm. to enjoy forever. Um, it's just a, a wonderful, delicate film. And it's coming to the Criterion Collection uh, <laughs> this year, I think in the next couple of months. And I'm so glad to see Criterion giving uh, more attention to Cora Ada these days. I mean, his profile has definitely risen a lot recently, and it's wonderful to see that paying off with you know high-profile releases like this. So um, yeah, Afterlife is my recommendation. It's going to be hitting Criterion's collection uh, in August, I believe. So when that happens, highly recommend that everyone check it out and you know give give themselves a chance to see a a movie that uh, has been hard to find up till now. Oh man, it took me a while to find that film, Kevin. And I think I ended up getting it through an interlibrary loan, but it it took forever and they shipped it from, I think, across the country or something crazy <laughs> like that. But I finally got it. The DVD wasn't the greatest um, in terms of quality, so I cannot wait to see this. And I'll, I'll try to get my library to purchase it too in case there are any other people out there that uh, want to pick it up from the library. So that's a great recommendation. I didn't know. Uh, that it was being released until I saw you talk about it on Twitter. I don't know, yesterday, today, something like that. And uh, got really excited about it. Got really excited about it. So can't wait to see that movie again. Uh, you know, Kevin, I was thinking about a film uh, that is that that I felt like is the true and better those who wish me dead. And this movie is actually my wife Priscilla's favorite film of all time. Uh, it's from 1996. And it's Jean de Bont's Twister. Uh, this is a this is a great natural disaster movie. A lot of fun. There's emotional depth to the characters and the camaraderie between these team of storm chasers, uh, as well as the rivalry. Is I think it's really good. So it stars Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton. They're the leads here, and uh, these. Researchers go out chasing tornadoes, chasing twisters, and uh, yeah, they get in danger. Philip Seymour Hoffman is on the crew as well. He's he's fun in this film. It's just, it's an entertaining picture. And I really want to watch this movie on the big screen. I want to find a way to watch it on the big screen because I, I think it could be fantastic. Hopefully, while it's, there's, a, there's a thunderstorm outside, you get a chance to go and see this film on the big screen. That would be amazing. Um, but it really just does everything well that those who wish me dead d- does not. And so, yeah, if you haven't <laughs> checked it out, you got it. 1996 Twister. It's it's a classic. I, I, I might be misremembering, but Twister might be might have been the very first PG-13 movie that I got to see oh, in, in the movie theater. So, um, 
you know, it wasn't the first PG-13 movie I'd ever seen, but it was the first one I think that I saw at release. And, you know, I was really looking forward to it, you know, state-of-the-art special effects for the time. And uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a ride for sure. And I think that was also the very first time I saw Philip Seymour Hoffman in a movie. So, you know, lots of mm. milestones for me there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, I like I like the film a lot. And it, at Universal Studios, they used to have this little attraction, like where you, you go in and they sim, quote unquote simulate a tornado and have they have like screens where the cow comes across in that famous image of a cow being blown by a twister. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just it's campy. But but these are the types of 90s movies that really just like I, I enjoy. So I, that that's my <laughs> recommendation for the I, I have to ask, Wade, what? Would it uh, get me too far uh, in Priscilla's uh, list of enemies, I guess, if, if I said that I, I don't like Twister that much? I know that, you know, she, she and I, you know, have not seen eye to eye on movies before. So I'm, I'm just I want yeah. to avoid conflict wherever possible. So <laughs> although I guess if she listens to this know. podcast, then the cat's already out of the bag. Yeah. Oh, man. I don't know. I don't know. It just. Yeah, I mean, if you don't like this, you don't like Dante's Peak, uh, who knows? <laughs> who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> I mean, you know, mid-90s disaster movies are a, a genre and an art form unto themselves. So uh, it might just be that, you know, it's just not for me and that's fine too. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, no, I totally get it. But that those are those are her jam. She, she likes those. <laughs> Listeners, thanks so much for listening to this episode Support us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. We've got a lot of different donation levels, and we mentioned this. We kind of just have to do it, Kevin. Uh, One donation level is the what can you buy for $5 level. Got a lot of great perks, and that that raises an interesting philosophical question, Kevin. What can someone buy for 5 bucks? Oh, well, $5 would get you a special attachment for your household tools and objects and appliances where if you just can't find it, you don't know where it is, at the uh, press of a button on your your phone, on the app on your phone, you will cause it to emit a thin stream of smoke, and that stream of smoke will allow you to locate it from, you know, perhaps Mm. underneath the couch cushions or under the table or under the bed somewhere. And, you know, you can locate it that way. And of course, if you attach it to, to certain sets of tools and you can say, ah, where there's smoke, there's pliers. Mm. Mm. So there, there, I even got the fire related pun here right in under the wire. So you're welcome, United States of America. Oh man, you did it. That's crazy. (laughs) Just if you're working on electricity stuff with the pliers and, and you hit that switch and it starts smoking, that could be a cool prank as well. You know, the, the prank possibilities are mm. really great because, you know, sometimes <laughs> you it's not necessarily a welcome sight to see a smoke of unknown provenance suddenly uh, uh-huh. waft through your your uh, your house. So, you know, use use advisedly use according to the the, the attached safety instructions. It is not <laughs> recommended to make people think that their house is burning down. So, yeah, don't don't use it that way. <laughs> That would cost more than $5. More than five bucks and a misdemeanor, likely. (laughs) So, yes, listeners, hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. We appreciate everyone who supports us, keeps this show going. 
Thank you for checking out this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?